continuing with our contemplation of the Buddha's teaching and our practice of meditation. Last night Kidisaro opened up a bit more fully the contemplative aspect of the meditative process which is sometimes called Vipassana which uh, means literally seeing into the seeing into the nature of things seeing into the nature of Dharma the Dharmas uh, Dharma is an interesting word we don't have an exact translation in English really um, the old way that it was translated sometimes was nature or the law the Dharma um, there's nothing really outside of the Dharma nature so it's a very vast word everything's included within Dharma both that which is good, that which is evil that which is ignorant, that which is awakened every condition within this relative realm within this mortal plane is a part of the Dharma realm and has the characteristics of the, of, of the relative characteristics of change which Kilisara uh, was reflecting on so beautifully last night and yet Dharma also means that which is changeless that which is within which it's all happening so it has these two different dimensions to it sometimes called the Sankhata and the Asankhata which means the, the time bound and the timeless the Dharma nature so it's the form and the space or it's the conditioned and the unconditioned and reflecting on Dharma we're beginning to reflect on both dimensions, both aspects knowing intimately as the Dharma nature unfolds within our own sphere of knowing and that which knows as we move more (coughs) into the centre of gravity the knowing literally is being in the position of the Buddha rather than being in the position of the one that's worrying or the one that's figuring it out or being in the position of the one that's fearful or happy or sad moving into just pure knowing this is how it is in this moment and this is not beyond any of our capacities to realise, to open to So being the Buddha, knowing the Dharma knowing change, knowing the world of change knowing the world of happiness, knowing the world of suffering and knowing the space within which it's all happening As we um, open our meditation into this Vipassana it sometimes doesn't feel quite so peaceful as the samatha or the samadhi that we've been cultivating it's not so controlled in a way and it's not so dependent upon 
a controlled environment. In many ways, if you take samadhi or samatha meditation to its limit, uh, which are very high and refined absorptions or jhanic states, then mostly you need quite a controlled environment to do that within. Maybe a cave where no one's really disturbing you um, and there's no pressures put upon you. Uh, and then uh, there's no external distraction. And in that kind of situation, if that's pursued long enough, then naturally one, and one is cultivating in that way, then naturally one will be able to explore very settled and peaceful states of samadhi. But we don't have, we can't really create those environments. So that's why, as Kibisa was saying, although it's a profound aspect of the path, and one that uh, is a base, for Vipassana and insight, it it does have its limitations because we have to move within a world where there is constantly a sense of being uh, impinged upon or being ruffled in one way or another or having contact with that which is hot or cold, disturbing, joyful, pleasurable, painful. We live in a a sensory experience that uh, the senses constantly have this sense of contact. And contact generates pleasure and pain. So this Vipassana, we're beginning to open the meditation more into a, a reflective, contemplative mode. So this reflective, this Buddha knowing has a reflective capacity. Uh, this, this capacity to know is, is it can reflect, literally reflect into things like a mirror. It reflects things into itself. And for the sake of seeing, understanding, knowing what is reflected. <coughs> So sometimes when when we start to open into this Vipassana meditation it can be a little unnerving because basically one feels it's not so peaceful. One loses, can feel sometimes a, a, a sense of loss of the control of keeping it all together in, this, uh, in, in, a, in a state of, of, of samadhi or concentration. But the Vipassana always needs this, um, this Samatha meditation to support it. It does need a certain amount of present attention. Uh, otherwise, what we, we call Vipassana isn't really Vipassana, it's just being lost in what appears and being carried by the current, the momentum of the mind's energy. Rather reflecting on it, we're just being carried here, there and everywhere. And it becomes um, a sort of a wishy-washy thing, rather than, a, than than something that develops clarity. We just get washed around. And so, if we find that happening, we might need to highlight the samatha coming 
back to just spending time re-establishing connection with the breath, with body, with being present. So it's, 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 they, they're not totally distinguishable um, aspects of the meditative process, the samatans or pasana. Ajahn Chah used to say it's like two sides, two ends of a log. If you're going to pick up a log, you have to pick them both up together. You can't really pick one the log up with, with only picking one side up and leaving the other out. They both have to to arise together. Or another another way he talked about it is like samatha meditation, calming meditation is like ca- a candle, it's like developing a a candle. Vipassana is like lighting the candle. If we just develop samatha, we might have a whacking great candle, which is great, but we don't really see anything. We don't become enlightened to anything. We don't cultivate any wisdom. It's very dependent upon the inner and outer conditions being still. It's peaceful enough, but it's, it can be. It also can be quite fragile. But if we have a, a match with a light on it, and there's a wind blowing, and we don't have any candle to put the flame to, then it just goes out like that. So this this, this constant dance or movement between these two aspects of calming, centering, focusing, bringing attention to the present and allowing that attention then to open to illuminate what is here now, what is, what is, what are we contemplating when we open the mind, what are we contemplating? Well, in the Vipassana meditation, we're really looking in some ways, not so much necessarily at the content or the detail of what where we might look at the detail, but we're not really going into the so much. We can choose to do that, but we're not necessarily going so much into the storyline of what appears. But perhaps rather than looking in that way, of going down the particular avenues of the conceptual mind, we're looking more perhaps at the construct. We're looking at the nature of. And there's value in, both, in doing both. There's value in going into the content and there's value in looking at the, just the general construct. For example, we might be contemplating the nature of, of anger. Maybe we're feeling anger, it arises, or aversion. It arises in this present moment. Now we can, in the meditative process, we can start to think, now I wonder where that comes from. Maybe it's to do with um, a particular issue. Maybe it's to do with an issue that arose from my childhood. And maybe I need to really go into that to understand that, to be released from that aversion. And that can be a very constructive and valuable pathway to take. And it may be revealing to us or it may not. But however, um, in some ways, for Pasna, we're just we're not leaning so much into that. It's not saying that that's not possible, but we may be, be leaning more into knowing the nature of aversion in its characteristics, in that it's a part of the world of change. Perhaps noticing the feeling tone of it, noticing the space within it, noticing the impersonality of it. It's not to disown it or to push it away, but beginning to see there is aversion rather than I'm feeling averse and there must be some reason there for it. And maybe there is, and I, and I don't want to devalue that. But just 
just it's just a question sometimes of the different ways that we lead. When the, the Buddha talked about his the night of his enlightenment, in his this was quite a revolutionary point really in the um, evolution of the enlightenment process. I don't quite know how to put it, but before his particular enlightenment or insight, the great yogic feats of, the, of, of his generation of the past were very much concerned with this refinement of consciousness to, a, to almost a totally disembodied degree. And his particular um, brilliance or his particular opening was into actually not so much trying to lift off the planet or to, to try and um, dwell in, a, in such a refined work realm that, wasn't, that was no longer bothered by contact. His particular brilliance was actually realizing that even though there was contact, impermanence, death and so on, he opened to that which is which transcends birth and death, transcends the mortal realm. And he did that through, or the way he articulated it, was through a teaching which is very profound and very accessible for us. After his after his night of enlightenment, after he after he had um, come to his insight his first articulation of it um, was a profound statement of truth. You know, what had he seen? What, what, what was it about? Um, and obviously he, he must have looked extremely radiant, extremely peaceful. <coughs> and um, he was in a... he was in this... had this aura, I imagine, of great beauty great radiance and someone came to him someone was passing his way and said wow you know you look pretty peaceful you know what are you about and the Buddha's first statement was I am the world transcender there is no one that knows transcended transcended this world in the way that I now know it was a, a sort of declaration, it was a lion's roar, I can't remember the exact articulation, but it was this lion's roar of enlightenment, of freedom. And it was a total statement of the truth for all of us when we're no longer deluded and, and caught and grasping, trying to find ourselves in one particular fragment of the changing world and identifying ourselves in that way, but releasing into the totality, into the whole, and it's just like, here I, I am. But the guy couldn't relate to it. It was like, well, that's great for you. You, know, <laughs> you look peaceful, you look wonderful, that's great. And he just moved on. You know, it was wonderful for the Buddha, but what did it do for him? It was, it was a teaching that's true, but for, in a way, was, was like the top of the beam pole. It's, it's hard to jump up there. So the Buddha then decided to, to teach in relative terms, and it's not to undermine or diminish that, that truth but to realize that we have different capacities. And so he thought about it and he came out with his next teaching, which was, there is suffering. And that's everything. That's something we can all relate to. That's not too difficult for us. We don't have to jump to the top of the beanpole to go, there is suffering. We can feel that, we know that. And he went on to say, because you and I 
um, have not understood these four truths that he then went on to lay out, we have wandered endlessly through the realm of samsara, through not understanding these four things, these four noble truths. So they feature very prominently in the in the Buddha's teaching these four truths, and they're very they're a lifetime's contemplation, and we can always come in at any point on them wherever we happen to be, whether we're the all enlightened one one morning, or whether we're a deep state of shit. You know, it's always accessible somewhere. We can always begin to negotiate the teaching, the path. So then. After his enlightenment, he, he walked from Budgaya, from the Bodhi tree, to Saranath and turned, of course, turned the wheel, the Dhamma Chakra teaching, the wheel of the Dharma. And he turned the wheel by pronouncing these four truths. And he also said, my knowledge, the knowledge of a Buddha, the knowledge of an awakened one, is vast. He was standing in a forest with his disciples and he said, see all these leaves on the tree here. There's so many leaves. My knowledge is like this. I know he could see all the conditions that gave rise to various karmic births throughout the realm. He could see all his past lives, the past and future lives of other beings. He could see so many different levels were open to him. But he said, what I teach, he took a handful of leaves, and what is important for you to know is not necessarily the whole cosmos. Yeah, it's, it's vast, it's, it's huge. And we can spend lifetimes trying to understand it all. He said, what's important for you to know, and he took these handful of leaves, uh, is, is similar to these, this small handful of leaves, and this small handful of leaves rep- represents these four truths. This is what is important for you to understand. So each of these four truths, if you read them as they were initially laid out in the text, they're rather dry sometimes, they come over as rather um, tedious, um, and they need some work to sort of bring some moisture to them. But each of the truths are laid out in three different insights. Each truth has three different aspects to it, three different, like a like if you pick up a prism and it has different, the way the light will fall on different sides of the prism. There's one truth, but there's, there's three different insights connected with each of these truths. In the first noble truth, this statement, the first insight is just simply a statement. There is suffering. There is, actually suffering isn't exactly the right translation either. There is dukkha. And it's, it's just a statement of fact. It's just like saying the sky is blue or that flowers grow or that birds sing. It's just like there is. There is dukkha. Um, and it's not a personal failing. It's not um, you know, some statement of something terrible about ourselves or the world. It's just there is this experience of dukkha. And dukkha literally means that which is lacking in spaciousness. Do means apart, akash, apart from the spacious, or it means that which is difficult to bear, the feeling of something constricted, limited, limitation, 
Um, it means dis-ease, or it means suffering. Um, so there is this experience. It's not um, it's not a a statement about a personal failing. Often when we when we feel dukkha, we take it as a personal failing. Like, you know, I'm suffering, there must be something bad with me, there's nothing wrong with me, there's something I'm doing wrong. So in, our, in the Vipassana, initially we're beginning to create some space around this experience of dukkha. We're not so immediately identifying it as a self, as a, as a me, me and my suffering. Me that's angry, me that's thinking, me that's worrying, me that's anxious, me that's happy, me that's sad, me that doesn't understand, me that's got it really clear and got it all figured out, me that's having great insight. And on one level it is me, (laughs) but we're just beginning to create this space. And so one helpful way when we come up to this feeling of dukkha is just to say, as simply as the Buddha did, there is. There is this constriction, there is this this dis-ease, and we can contact it. That same attention that we were bringing to the breath, to sound, to body sensation, we directly bring that same quality of attention supported by samatha, supported by vitaka, the directing the mind, the thought, and allowing the attention to receive. And this is the second insight of the first truth, which is dukkha needs to be understood. Um, an ennobling truth. It needs to be turned to, it needs to be open to, to really to distill the wisdom in the teaching. One needs to first of all just not dukkha needs to be annihilated or blasted off the planet or that it needs to be projected out there, you know, there's this dukkha because it's raining now or because the person next to me is an idiot (laughs) or because whatever. Um, it doesn't need to be projected on ourselves. Uh, you know, there is dukkha because I'm such an idiot myself. Um, or it doesn't need to be repressed. Um, or doesn't, we don't need to turn ourselves into a martyr because we experience this. But there, dukkha, the second insight, is dukkha needs to be open to or understood or received. Just that simple movement. It's not an intellectual figuring out, of, you know, it's again, it's this content, it's not necessarily going into a why am I suffering, where did it come from, it must be something to do with a past life, or the way I was brought up, or the way I was treated at school, and so on, and so on, and so on. And yes, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not, you know, it's not always clear, but for the sake of the Vipassana, we're just saying Dukkha needs to be open to, feel it, allow it, open to it. As Kitty Sa was saying, last night in the, the parenting of the, the orphans, this notion of the parent is, is this quality of attention, the receiving into awareness. We're doing the parenting, we're parenting, we're connecting and opening to that feeling of dis-ease. We're not trying to push it away any longer. In fact, dukkha is not, is in a way, Pain and, and, and dis-ease, constriction, is not really a problem. We make it a problem. The dukkha is really this constant sense of it shouldn't be like this. 
whatever's appearing is as it is. It's really our mistaken or distorted relationship to that generates the disease, this ease. In fact, it has its own perfection. Whether it's worry, or fear, or doubt, or you know, all the different forms, birth, old age, the more grosser forms, it is as it is. It's a part of, as that word dharma, a part of the nature unfolding that we generate. It's actually, literally, it's something we're doing. So this is why we can also dissolve dukkha because it's something we're doing out of ignorance. It's not something that that um, that's inherent, really. In one way, yes, it is inherent because of this undependable, changing nature. But the 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 dukkha, dukkha, as we could call it, the stuff that we lay on top is generated from not understanding, the ignorant, the ignoring, the not knowing, the not seeing clearly the true nature of the conditioned realm. That it is changing, that it's impermanent, that it's not something we can grasp and find our, our total identity within. This is me. We're taking a little part of it and saying, this is me. In fact, we're much faster than that, but we tend to go, this is me. I'm a worry. I'm a worry wart. I always knew I was a worry wart. That's my true identity. I'm just filled up with with rage. So this this opening to um, allows us just to feel, to bring that attention, and to not be fearful of just feeling dukkha, receiving it. If the samadhi is weak, if the samatha is weak, then we tend to be in a reactive mode. So, we tend to either get overwhelmed or moved into one of the pathways of the storylines around it or we tend to, to resist and start pushing away and then we generate struggle. And so if we find ourselves doing that, we might just need to come back very simply, re-establish attention with the breath, with sound, with the body, re-centre, and then experiment again, just opening that attention, opening that field to receive what is present now. So it's a, it's, Vipassana has this taste of clarity about it. You know, the fruit of Vipassana, it's, it's a clear, it's a seeing, it's just knowing, this, this is how it is. And then the third aspect of this, this first truth is dukkha has been understood, it's been seen. It's just a sort of journey in a way through, and it can, it can be just like that. Um, that reflective, awaken aspect, that knowing mind, the Buddha, the Buddha seeing the Dharma of Dukkha, can just say, this is Dukkha here. There is this experience. And then the opening to it, and then seeing it, ah, it is as it is. It is as it is. I don't need to to do anything about it, actually. Maybe sometimes I do, maybe I don't, but for this exercise, we're just seeing it. This is as it is. And so this this third aspect of the first truth is the understanding, is the seeing, is the acknowledgement, it's the sort of, we got it, we understood it, we saw it. So what uh, really um, generates primarily this experience of dukkha is, is, is a lack of clear seeing. Uh, or sometimes called, or always called in Buddhism, avijja, which means ignorance, it's, it's literally not seeing. 
and it's a very we, you know to fathom to try and the Buddha said to try and fathom where this comes from. Some people say, well, where did that come from? You know, what's the cause? And you say, well, it's like saying, where does the sky come from? At a certain point, it's beyond the conceptual mind to figure out. You can just say it's there. It's there. Second truth as we start to note this experience of dukkha, we start to come more into touch what generates what generates sometimes this subtle sense of separation or discontent that we feel. The second truth also I won't go through all the insights because it will be it will become, if it's not already becoming a bit laborious. But um, it's just during the day, so we can perhaps, we can, if I can just touch briefly into the, the other truths, I won't go into the, uh, as much detail perhaps, because um, it will become too much, but if we can just begin to recognize some of the terrain, it will, it will be helpful. So this, 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 each of the truths has a particular medicine to it. The first truth is dukkha needs to be understood, and we went through the different steps of that process. It's for us to practice the actual process, but dukkha needs to be understood. The second truth, panha, which means desire, craving, needs to be let go of. I was talking about this last night. What generates, partly generates this sense of discontent, dis-ease, is this energy of, of tanha. We've been looking a bit at that, but we, the need to actually just recognize it and not to be compelled to have to, to follow it is what the second truth is about. In a way, another way of putting it is that, that the mind not knowing its own spacious nature as primordial awareness, the mind not knowing its own nature, not knowing our own nature, if you like. Spacious, aware, open. There's this, in the, the flow of conditioned phenomena, sometimes called sankara, the flow of, of stuff. There's this, there's this leaning into, you could call it leaning into the field. There's this kind of leaning into the field, this primordial movement to find ourselves we don't you know when you, we start to open into just being into awareness there's actually no description about it it's fast it's limitless it's peaceful it's so on but there's this sort of movement wanting to know ourselves it's like you know looking at the reflection we think the reflection like the moon in the water is ourselves and you start to pick, try and pick that up and of course it keeps slipping through our fingers so this kind of movement wanting to to know who we are and we start to lean into some of the feel or this, if, we, if we can look at it like a flow some, this flow is called Sankara conditioned phenomenon or anusaya sort of latent tendencies movement of the, of the mental 
um, field. It's just it's kind of moving. And as this, this, this moving into, there's this beginning, this sense of discriminative awareness, or discriminative consciousness, which means a sense of subject and object, a sense of me in here and you out there, which happens both sides of the sense doors. It happens as there's a sense of me here and you there, and it feels like there's this primary separation. In fact, there's not, but that's what it begins to feel like. And in that, of course, when there's a, that subject-object, there has to be contact. Contact of the senses with the object. The subject with the object, me with you. And when there's contact, there's feeling. Yeah, there's pleasant unpleasant feeling and as feeling arises then it it starts to generate when there's when we get we start to prefer we're not no longer we're not no longer just seeing the flow the lucid fluid flow of that which is arising and passing there's we're beginning to take a stance we're beginning to need to find ourselves through taking a stance quite subtly sometimes for and against for, usually for the pleasant and against the unpleasant, or maybe the other way around if we're a bit more <laughs> perverse in some way or other, but generally speaking, there's this kind of taking a stand, beginning to, to want to follow that which we feel will, will give us the fullness that we felt we've lost somewhere in some deep part of our being, that connectedness. And so there's this movement, this thirsting, and this, this very simplistically is I'm just looking at what's called the dependent arising, the notion of me, self, um, individually and um, separately existing. So this this thirsting or this this desiring starts to come into full play. It starts to really move into the feeling of 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 wanting strong sense of wanting, wanting something, wanting, not only wanting something, it's wanting to be someone, wanting to find ourselves located in time and space in a particular shape, in a particular way of being. Or the opposite, not wanting to be someone. When we get tired of being someone, then we move into the opposite, which is like an annihilation. We're trying to blot out. And this this whole movement of, of, you know, from the the subtle sense of leaning into, into becoming full-blown me, the person in time and space, is fueled by this quality called tanha or thirst. And it generates, because moving into then the separate sense of self, there's always, it's always connected with the sense of dukkha, limitation. And so dukkha is fueled by this sense of tanha, craving. And so if we haven't really you know, in this wheel of dependent origination, the first link that we can begin to, often it's depicted like this sangsara, it's, a wheel, it's, it's the wheel of sangsara in detail really, it's depicted like a chain, like a, that we keep moving around. And there's certain parts in the chain where you can break the links, and the first one is avijja, right at the very beginning, it's through clear seeing. Just seeing this is how it is, and not moving into this is me, this is how it is, there is. Just that shift begins to open us into just the spacious awareness. There is. If we have quite 
got that, then we then we can start to contemplate around the second truth, which is a bit further down on the chain, where there's there's the there's the link between feeling, contact feeling, and then craving or tanha. There may be feeling that arises in our meditation, pleasant, unpleasant feeling, and then immediately there's this movement: I like, I don't like; I want, I don't want. So that's what we can start to contemplate. We can start to see there's painful feeling here. There's sleepiness, there's aversion, there's um, fear, there's the things that we don't like. And actually, in and of themselves, they're not really a problem. They're just part of the Dharma realm. They are a problem, but they're not really a problem. (laughs) But immediately, this tanha is saying, I don't like, I don't want, shouldn't be here. So, contemplating the second truth, we start to contemplate those we've already touched into this, but this very, this very powerful primordial force of tanha, craving to become something, it can be very explicit, I want to be, you know, an astronaut, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or I want to be a good meditator, or I want to be enlightened, um, to very subtle movement of the mind, I, I, I want to be peaceful, I want to be, you know, and rather than, you know, if there's a delusion or ignorance there, we believe that. I want to, and we start to, to try and, you know, manipulate and shape and control and, you know, this whole stressful thing starts to happen where we try and get what we want. However, you know, spiritual the want may be, it's still that same movement. So in the Vipassana, we're just seeing tanha. We're just naming it. Just seeing wanting, desiring, becoming. Sometimes the Buddha talked about this as a flood. It's like a, it can come like a flood. It just carries us. It's so powerful. And then the opposite of not, not wanting. Or vipuratanha. You know, it's, it's not wanting what is present, but it can also be quite a deep sankara, quite a deep felt thing of just not wanting to be here. Not wanting to exist is sometimes how it's articulated. And we can, I think we can all sometimes relate to that. Some people have that very strongly. And it's just to be in contact, to be here, is painful. And so we meet that with this, this kind of dulling out or this moving away. This sort of curling up under the duvet kind of feeling. <laughs> so we, you know, just to awaken, to just notice these, this tanha as it moves through the day and um, how it tends to generate in a subtle or extreme way this, this feeling of, of dukkha so tanha the second truth I think we'll finish here because uh, it will be way too much to go into the third truth um, but the second truth there is tanha there is this experience of wanting, not wanting, desiring, thirsting, seeking to find our identity somehow, to become something other than what is. Uh, and then we become that and it shifts and changes because it's the nature of it. This tanha, the medicine that the Buddha gave, needs to be let go of, or let be, or abandoned, or not followed needs to be seen but not engaged with right, unless we choose to do so for whatever reason but as a Vipassana, working in the Vipassana we just see it and we learn what is it like to see that movement but not follow it 
Can we feel the space in that? Can we feel the freedom in that? Can we feel it opening us, as Kibisara was saying so beautifully last night, opening, in our, opening us into another dimension of our being? Because otherwise, we literally become our desires. If we don't awaken to that movement, we become. You know, that's why we constantly feel spun around. Whatever desires there, we become it. We become the wanting, the whatever it is. Until that fades, and then we become the next thing. So, what is it like when we don't necessarily follow, especially this ancient, powerful movement sometimes? We don't follow it, we just see it. We can feel the force of it. In the Vipassana, we're looking at it, but we're beginning to look at the movement in it, the changeability in it, the space in it. We're not sucked totally into it. And then the space is happening again. And the space is happening within is about the third truth, but we can look at that later. I think it's enough to be working with today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.